to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. Today I'm speaking on a scripture from Luke 23, verse 34. The scripture says this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they were doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The drama that I'm going to talk about today happened at the place of the skull. You've heard of that, also called Golgotha. And there's actually a photograph of it. It's a physical place. It still exists. You can go there. I've been there. This photo is very old, as you can see. But what it does show is that the place of the skull was near a road. Can you see the people in the foreground? That was a very busy road. And the Romans didn't crucify Jesus on the top of a far-off hill, but rather right by the main road, because the reason they crucified people was as a lesson. So everybody going along the road could say, they could say this is what happens to people who go against the power of Rome. Oh, here's a bit of a close-up. This photo, of course, is very new. You can see it's quite modern, and it really does look like a skull, doesn't it? I thought I'd tell you that so you know that this is grounded in reality. You can actually go to the place. And this is what the Bible says. So this is picking up from verse 5 of Luke 23. Two others who were criminals were also led away to be executed with Jesus. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his garments by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers sneered at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he's the Christ, the Son of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him and came up to offer him sour wine. If you're the king of the Jews, they said, save yourself. Above him was posted an inscription, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there heaped abuse on him. Are you not the Christ, he said? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same judgment? We are punished justly, for we are receiving what our actions deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. Now the Greek language has no commas. And your version of the Bible has put that into good English by putting a comma somewhere. Did it say this? Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Or does it say this? Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. We don't know the answer. So once again, Jeremy stands up the front and tells you something that Christians like to argue about, but we don't know the answer. Was Jesus saying this very day you'll be with me in paradise? We don't know. Hooray, we saved another argument. Let's unpack that a bit. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they were doing. Who didn't know what they were doing? The soldiers who whacked those nails into Jesus' hands purely to hurt because the ropes held him to the cross. They didn't know it was going to hurt. They knew it was going to hurt. 
who didn't know what they were doing. The religious leaders who sent an absolutely innocent man to his death and torture just because they were jealous, they knew what they were doing. What about the criminal who hung next to him and sort of mocked him and abused him? He knew what he was doing on the face of it, didn't he? And what about Pilate? who had a message, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much about him in a dream. Did he know what he was doing? Yes, he knew. He knew that Jesus was innocent, and he tried to let him go. He knew what he was doing. But Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They did know what they were doing, but in a way they didn't. They didn't know that what they were doing was taking part in the most evil deed, the greatest injustice ever. They didn't know that. And they literally didn't know that they were killing the Son of God. And they had no idea that their actions that day would lead to the reconciliation, the coming together of God and man. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Is this the greatest act of forgiveness ever? How should we respond? Well, first way we should respond to this is in thankfulness. So let's do that right now. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you suffered and died for us in agony, going through all that. And you said, forgive the people who are torturing you. That is such an amazing act of forgiveness. Something that you went through voluntarily, you could have got out of it. And we are just amazed at your love for us, and we know we're not worthy of it. I've seen older Christians pray a prayer like that and weep as they pray, when they just realize the hugeness of Jesus' sacrifice and his forgiveness for us. How have other people responded? You may have heard of a young Christian called Stephen. And as Stephen was dragged out of town purely for preaching a sermon and put down in a pit, and as people threw stones at him to kill him, his last words were this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Some ancient Bible texts don't have verse 34, this one up here, they're not in there. But I believe that that text really is a part of the Bible, and this is why. Because we see Stephen copying what Jesus did. I believe that makes a strong case for saying Jesus really did pray this prayer. And we follow Jesus. You've heard of Corrie ten Boom. And uh, you've heard of her forgiveness, how hard it was to forgive somebody who came forward and said, thank you for forgiving the cruel prison guards in the concentration camp who beat your sister to death. I'm one of them. And what a huge thing it was for Corrie ten Boom to realizing that she was confronting one of these monsters who killed her sister. And he's asking for forgiveness. In fact, he was thanking her for forgiving him. And it was like something very strong, a very great battle in his soul that day. But she did forgive him because that's what Christians do. We've got that example. I've told you the story of the man who went into a prison in Auckland to the, man who, to the young man who'd got so drunk that he killed their beautiful son. And he said, my wife and I have been talking about this. We have decided to forgive you. And the young man in prison just broke down. How could you do that? Somebody's killed your son. How could you forgive him? But they did. Because we're Christians, that's what we do. I heard stories when I was young which quite inspired me. A man in Africa who's about to be killed for his faith. And they said, do you have any last words? He says, yes. 
I owe Mr. Mwali a chicken. Please, someone make sure that he gets it. See, to him, the sacrifice of his life was a nothing because of what Jesus did for us. Another man in Scotland many years ago was being dragged away to his death because of his Christian faith. And they said to him, do you have any last words? And these were his last words. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. I never sang that corny song with quite such the same feeling again. You see, I have to ask, could I do that? Could you do that? If ever I had to do that, could I do that? Could I forgive people doing that to me? And I told you a few weeks ago when I preached a sermon here, yes, you could and I could because God's grace is sufficient. And each of those people, Corey Ten Boom, the man with the chicken, I'm going to tell you that earlier in their life they would have thought, I don't think I could ever do that. But when it actually comes to it, God's grace steps in and it's sufficient for us. It's his power, not ours. Now, when we hear a story of grand, inspiring forgiveness, we know that God's in it. There is an old saying from England where I come from. It says, to err is human, to forgive divine. Err is an old-fashioned word that means muck up, so I'll translate it. To muck up is human. Humans muck up. To forgive is divine. God does it. I'm going to tell you a story right now of a great forgiveness that happens right here, and it affects the very ground we're on today. And it takes a, there's a bit of New Zealand history in it. Bear with me. I won't say all the details. If I start you in an interest and you want to go and research some more, that's good. This land that we live in, these islands, were the scene of continual wars for hundreds and hundreds of years. Some savage, cruel wars as people fought mainly over land. Some of my most beautiful and favorite places have the saddest of stories. This is the Kauranga Valley. Who's ever been there? It's, it's like a place where I go for my soul to rest, all right? It restores. It's up behind Thames. And it's the most beautiful and wonderful place. But I've been there many times over many years before I found out how it got its name. The Kauranga Valley, here we go. Historians from the Ngati Maru tribe claim the name originated from a famous battle. Members of Ngati Maru stacked up the jawbones of their defeated enemies in rows on the banks of the river. So this beautiful, peaceful place was a place of horror. And here's another very favorite place of mine. This is Wainui Ototo, um, also known as New Chums Beach. It was voted by Lonely Planet one of the 10 loveliest beaches on the world. But when you go there and you think, why is it called Wainui Ototo? And the Ngati Huarere people tell us that the name Great Waters of Blood comes from a great battle fought above the beach between local iwi when the cliffs ran red with blood. In the 1820s, the musket came to New Zealand in big numbers. Muskets were muzzle-loading long rifles. And it meant that fighting didn't need to be done hand-to-hand -hand as it had been, but it could be done at a distance. You could shoot people far away. And many local people got muskets, and it changed warfare, but it didn't change the human heart. In 1821, uh, tribes expelled Ngati Toa chief Te Rauparaha from Kafia after intertribal fighting close to here. Waikato, led by Te Whero Whero, then attacked Ngati Toa in Taranaki. In 1824, Waikato and Ngāti Tūwhare defeated Ngāti Kahugunu at Napier. In 1826, Waikato invaded Taranaki, forcing some groups to move south. Waikato attacked Taranaki tribes again in the early 1830s. So all sorts of tribal movements as Māori tribes moved to other places to get away from the fighting, particularly the most famous people like Te Rauparaha being one. Now in 1840, a treaty was signed. 
And it promised protection. It promised an end to wars. It promised people that they could keep their land, that this stuff would not go on anymore. There would be no more land taken. And people who owned land could choose. They could keep it if they wish. They could sell it if they wish. That was a promise of the Treaty of Waitangi, Te Tiriti o Waitangi, which was seen by the Maori people very much like a covenant in the Bible, a very sacred thing. And you'd know that that is very sacredly treated today, Te Tiriti o Waitangi. The Tainui people who live here became very prosperous with that peaceful period. You have to remember that in those days, most Pākehās could not read. Only about a quarter of them could. But the Māori people almost all could. The Māori people were very educated. They loved technology. And this land where we stand became modern farms. There were mills. There was transport. There was lots and lots of shipping registered to Māori owners taking produce from here as far away as Sydney and California. A lot of people don't know that. Mark Twain sailed up the river, I think, in the 1830s, and he described the paradise. Educated people working hard and building beautiful things and getting prosperous. The river was like the main road as canoes and boats of every description went up the river, or, or actually downstream, to feed the growing city of Auckland. You see, the government had bought Auckland for cash, for money, and were building their capital city there. So the Tainui people became prosperous by supplying Auckland. What happened? Well, I'll tell you perhaps the best and the worst spin on it. You can decide for yourself. Some people say that the government looked at the, the land around here and they go, this is sort of out of control. There have been some murders, some crimes have been committed, and the government can't really control it. So we're going to take soldiers down to bring it under our, our control so we can have a law-abiding Waikato. Other people say this that people look down and they say, this beautiful farmland is there and it should be in our hands. To buy it would cost three million pounds, but to have a war, we could take it for only one million. There we are, I've given you the best and the worst spin on it. So for whatever reason, General Cameron, with the British troops, which of course included Māori members, marched down and took over this whole area right from, from what was then called Mangatafari, which is a different was a different place then, right down. You know the story of these land wars. And so you have a big wrong. Because the Māori people haven't only lost the land which they have the spiritual connection with and their ancestors were on, but they've also lost their entire economic base. Have you ever wondered why Peach Grove in Hamilton is called Peach Grove? Here's why. Because when the British Army went there, they found a peach orchard. Ooh, you didn't know the Māori people grew peaches. Well, they did. It was a very prosperous and modern society. And the Māori people were still allowed to go into the new city of Hamilton, but there was a sadness as they went to their familiar places and found they hadn't been respected. And this set up a hurt that lasted for years, for a long, long time. In the, 18, sorry, in the 1940s, the government agreed that this was a terrible grievance, and they agreed to pay a large sum of money to the Tainui tribes, which was done in the 1940s with... Uh, with that wonderful leader, Tapuya, uh, sort of leading that process. However, that was only money. And uh, as time went on and we got to the 1970s, 80s, things began to change and people go, no, we need to do more to put it right. We need to do more. And the Tainui leaders, 
with Sir Robert Mahuta being very prominent, started to, to, to work with the government to see, can we put this right? Can we do something to put right this long-standing grievance? Now, they did come up with a plan, and I'm going to say it in its briefest thing. The Tainui people wanted to have these things. First of all, they wanted to have an apology, and that was delivered by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II at Turangawaiwai who personally apologised for what had happened. The Tainui people wanted to have land given back. And uh, the government said that, and everybody agreed, that you mustn't cure one injustice with lots of others. If all the land that was taken was given back, then nearly all of us in here today would lose our homes and businesses. So what the government said was, we will give you back any land that we still own. And that, of course, included the base, the courthouse, uh, Hamilton University, police station, things like that, that the government still owned, and they were given back to Tainui, who became the biggest landlord overnight in Waikato. So all of those premises now are rented off Tainui. They also gave back to Tainui many houses in Huntley and Meremere as well. So Tainui briefly owned those, but they sold them. So there was an apology. Land was given back. Cash was given as well, $170 million with more to come. But I want to tell you that all of that stuff is only a drop in the bucket. And what actually comprised the Tainui settlement was not money or land or even an apology. It was forgiveness. Now, during this time when this happened, I was the odd pickle in the jar of Raka Manga School, which Adam has talked a bit about. So I'm sitting in a room with 30 people who are Māori, this is the staff, and me, who's British. And as that huge rejoicing uh, went through Māori society, rejoicing that things have been put right after so long, I had a huge lift in my spirit too, because I was sitting in a room with people who loved me and accepted me, but I knew there was something wrong, and it had to be put right. And when that settlement went through, I saw it as a picture of our salvation. You see, we come to God, we say, God, we have taken so much from you, we could never pay you back. Half our life's gone. What can we do? But we'll bring you what we can. We'll say sorry. We'll apologize. We'll bring you what's left of our life. We'll give it to you. We know it's a tiny bit. But forgiveness will have to cover the rest. And God says, yes, I forgive you. Now, when there's a great act of forgiveness, I believe that you will find that God is involved. And, of course, behind this, quietly, was our beloved Māori Queen, Dame Te Atarangi Kahu Te Arikinui a devout Christian woman who was, was sort of um, an adopted sister of Robert Mahuta, guiding the whole process with God being involved. And, of course, the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, who apologised, she's a Christian as well. When you see a great act of forgiveness, I assure you that God's been involved somewhere. And that affects the land on which we live. And I wanted you to know about it. You see, we could be arrogant. We could say, oh, you know, we, we paid back the... <laughs> no, we didn't. Or people could say, oh, well, you know... That the Pakistan stole our land, did it? No, because it's been forgiven. So the people with the right to forgive, forgave, and I'm really glad. It means a lot to me. I'm still a Brit. I'm not a New Zealander. We've talked about grand God-style forgiveness today, but most of our life isn't lived on that level, is it? We live it on a sort of humdrum day-to-day existence. And uh, you know who this guy is? C.S. Lewis, he wrote the Narnia Chronicles and lots of other things, but he also... Hmm? Charles Staples Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis. Ha, not often you get it wrong. 
Okay, so Clive Staples Lewis, known as Jack, to his friends because he doesn't like his names. Anyway, that's beside the point. He wrote a book, he wrote a number of Christian books, which are quite influential, although I must admit, when I read them now, even as an old Englishman, they look quite dated and British. So I'm going to paraphrase something he said. He talks about our enemy's plans. And the enemy says this, he says, when Christians decide they're going to give their heart and life to Jesus, the whole, whole life, they mean it. In theory, that's quite what they do. And if Jesus came to them and said, hello, you've given me your life, and today I want you to spend some of your life talking to grumpy, awkward people, and then you can have the rest of the day off, Christians would be quite pleased, wouldn't they? So our enemy says, I don't want you to ever think of it like that. I just want you to think about all the things that people do that annoy you. Because according to Mr. Clive Staples Lewis, a.k.a. Jack, he says that the things that trip us up are not the grand ones. When it comes to grand forgiveness, we seem to find this divine enabling and we can do it. It's the little annoyances, isn't it? The little bugs. Proverbs 19, it says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. The Amplified Bible puts it like this, Good sense and discretion make a man slow to anger, and it is his honor and glory to overlook a transgression or an offense without seeking revenge and harboring resentment. As I've explained before, this is man used in the old sense. It includes men and women. Now, these are not grand acts of forgiveness, but overlooking an offense is a powerful and transformational thing to do. Some of you will remember uh, when I was young, I've told you a bit about this, in my early 20s, I made a promise to myself, and I said this, I am going to try never to take offense where offense was not intended. Neil said that was quite a helpful thing to say. And, and it's happened lots of times in my life. I had all sorts of examples, but I've decided just to tell you one. And you go, that's a silly little thing, but this is what life is made of. I was driving along at Milford Sound, my truck slowly through the car park, looking for a park. And all of a sudden, in a side entrance... A man drove in, not realizing that it wasn't the main entrance. He drove right in. I slammed on the brakes of the truck. Everything went crash, bang, and fell off the seat. I missed him by such a small amount. And we very nearly had a crash. He hadn't looked. And then he went ahead, and he parked his car, and I drove slowly along, and he got out of his car, and he looked at me like this. And I smiled and waved, and the guy just came into a big, he was a rough-looking dude. He came into this great big beaming smile, and he yelled out, Thank you! Why, thank you. What had I done for him? I'd overlooked an offence, that's what. He didn't mean to pull out in front of me. He didn't mean to offend, so I didn't take offence. I got a fright. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> you see, these, these are the little things that can actually spoil your life. I, I, there was, here's a couple of people in this church, all right? One was called Miss Prim. Um, that's my name for her. Miss Prim had come to church for years, this church. And she said to me one day, I'm not coming to your church anymore. So why not? Because this lady at church spoke so rudely to me, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. I said, what? And she, what happened? She, well, it's this lady, and she started to describe the lady. This lady, I'll call her Dottie. Dottie had she had dementia. We were really worried. Could Dottie keep living on her own? And when she came in, this Dottie had said to Miss Prim something that made Miss Prim so offended that she decided not ever to come to church again, even though she'd been coming for literally over 30 years. So I said to her, what did she say to you? She said, she said to me, huh, look who's turned up today. I said, that's just her awkward attempt to be friendly. She, get, she gets it wrong all the time. She's a dotty old lady, and she's just trying to say hello. 
So Miss Prim goes, all right, and she did come back to church. That was a relief. Or, or here's another one. You see, see how a little thing could change your life? I mean, why would you let someone you don't even respect stop you coming to church? Duh. But people do, don't they? There was another one that happened here, and this was a church leader in this church, a lovely man. And uh, I liked him very much, a sweet gentleman. We were fixing a car together one day, which is when blokes talk. And he said to me about somebody who had hurt him very, very deeply. And I said, why? And this man was not a man to bear a grudge, but something had wounded his spirit. He said, he said that it served my mother right for dying. When my mother died, he said it served her right for smoking. And you could just see it. It just really hurt this man. And I, I thought for a moment, and when that happens, you sort of pray, don't you, for wisdom. And I said, did, did you hear him say that? He said, no, someone else told me. I said, would you consider this as a possibility? Somebody listened, and they said, oh, so-and-so's mother's died. Well, unfortunately, that's a risk you run when you smoke cigarettes. And then it went through one or two other people, and by the time it gets to the last person, they say, oh, they said it saved your mother right, it saved your mother right for smoking. Do you think that could have happened? He said, Yes, I think it could have happened. I said, then well, shall, shall we assume that it might have? And it just you could see the lift in my friend as he, as he did that. I had a teacher called Ross, and when he was preaching from 1 Corinthians 13, he said, when you read in the Bible, love believes all things, it doesn't mean love believes stupid things. It believes the best of people. Maybe he didn't mean it. Perhaps she was just tired. Imagine if everybody in this church had made that promise when I did. Well, I know most of you weren't alive. But if you'd made that promise, I'm going to try and never take offense from something that was not intended to offend. Wouldn't that have changed our church? Wouldn't it? Through the years. Because out in the world there, everybody's looking for offense, aren't they? You walk down the road, what are you looking at? Road rage. You know, somebody, I don't know, pulls out or something, and and then this... Crazy dude chases them for miles and miles, terrorizes them, and then kicks their car in and, and smacks, in some cases, kills them. In New Zealand, this today, killed them because they didn't like what they did on the road. And in the world now, it's our duty to be offended. We should be offended. Have you noticed that? The offenderati, there's even a name for them. And uh, I mean, <laughs> sometimes it is our duty to be offended. You know, if weak people are being exploited, we should be offended. If elder abuse is going on, if, if child abuse, including in abuse of the unborn, loan sharks who prey on our people around here, drug gangs, Jesus is offended. We should be too. Scammers, all right? But it's fashionable to look for offense, isn't it? So a few weeks ago, a minister of the Crown in Wellington, he said, you know, the trouble is that, it's a, that children should be supported by their mothers and fathers. Next thing, the whole country's screaming at him. Homophobia! What? To which Chris Luxon backed him up. He wasn't a minister. Sorry, he was a shadow minister. And Chris Luxon said, no. He said, do you know the people who aren't paying their, their child support? It's deadbeat fathers. It is fathers. That's not homophobia. I had a friend called Nancy Ahu Buckley. Did you know her, anyone? Yeah, she was, she was pretty straight up. And she said to me, looking for trouble is like picking your nose. Now, Nancy was pretty scary, so I never actually asked her what she meant. But I think what she meant is you'll always find something, and it won't be very nice, I suppose. Do you think I'm right? Do you think that's... Okay. And, and you see, Christians could be like that. Say, oh, he calls himself a Christian, and he had a beer, you know, or he had a vape or something. Oh, he calls himself a Christian, he's driving a new car, doesn't he know half the world's starving? Oh. 
He calls himself a Christian. He's driving an old car. What, that makes all the Christians look poor harder. Ooh, shouldn't be doing that. And say, so, oh, I'll walk then. You shouldn't walk. It wastes half your day. You're meant to be serving the Lord, not walking around all day. Okay, I'll ride a bike. You shouldn't. That's dangerous. Okay, I'll stay home. Uh, the Bible tells you you shouldn't be slothful, you know. We're meant to be out there making disciples. See, you can't win with people like that. But what if we, what if we were different? What if we shone by being different? If, what, what if we shone by overlooking an offense? If the people out there in businesses and around the town and everything got to know us as people who don't make a fuss, how, what would that be like? Barry Maguire, who was one of my childhood heroes, said that Christians are like shock absorbers. The whole world is in shock as things are bouncing around, and it's the Christians who take the shock and stop that bouncing around. Christians are shock absorbers. Okay, uh, I've told you about Hannah's first day at school before when the, when the little girls go, oh, don't play with her or we won't play with you. You might remember that. And uh, we won't be your friend if you play with her. And I see that in the church. I mean, I went to... I went to a Hamilton Christian meeting. Come and see this, this speaker, Jeremy. And I went there, and the, the speaker from America spoke, 40, uh, spoke for an hour. First 40 minutes, very standard, decent, sound, solid Christian teaching like you'd hear here. And then the last 20 minutes he spent by dissing other Christians, just telling us why this Christian's bad, that Christian's bad. Usually quite high-profile people, but the name I remember is Billy Graham. Why was Billy Graham bad? Because Billy Graham said something nice about the Pope, or he's friendly to the Pope. Since the Pope's a bad man, Billy Graham must be a bad man. What a load of nonsense. The secular press spent 60 years trying to dig up some dirt on Billy Graham. They couldn't. So the Christians will diss him because of who he played with. Don't play with him. We won't play with you. It's no more mature than that, is it? And you know what? Some, sometimes I disagree with some of you. You know, so people get up the front here and they read a book by Eugene Peterson called The Message. I don't like it. A few weeks ago, somebody read a passage from the message, and it was really beautiful translation. I was very impressed. But on three occasions, which I can remember clearly, somebody's got up here and read something that isn't like what the Bible said. And I go, ooh, that's not good. Have I stopped playing with you? No. Neil. Uh, Neil gave me a writer. Uh, he said, read, read some stuff from this man. Jeremy, I think you might like it. Ooh, I hate it. He's, this isn't the God I know. Am I still friends with Neil? Yes. You can play with Eugene Peterson if you want. What do you think of Brian Tamaki? I don't care. But Destiny Church? I don't care. Do you think Mother, Mother Teresa was good or bad? I don't care. Because I tell you what, I'm not going to break my relationship with you over that. What's your attitude to Christians bossing around society? Whoops, you probably just heard mine. So he shouldn't be opening his garden centre on an Easter Sunday. Why not? Says garden centre. I don't care. But if you think that he shouldn't, I'm not going to stop playing with you. Because your relationship with me is too important to me. This whole church has annoyed me. There are things I would disagree with. I might not like some of the songs or the attitudes or the, or the, or the, the, the terminology people use. But it doesn't matter a boodly do to me, to be honest. Because my relationship with you is far more important. I was talking with my friend John Cope one day. He told me something that stuck in my mind. He said, we were talking about somebody who was a bit quirky. He said, oh, well... He's got his funny little ways, but haven't we all? And I go, yes. Yes. Well, John, you certainly have, and I certainly have. Catherine was in the kitchen. I suppose she has too. My goodness, John, you just changed my life. If I was religious, I would have said, amen. I'm not, so I didn't. So, so please remember that quote from that great man of God, John Cope. He has his funny little ways, but don't we all? Yes, we do. If you think you don't, talk to someone afterwards. They'll tell you about it. 
because my fellowship with you is more important than our differences. Most of you know what I do. I go into all sorts of homes in Huntley with all sorts of troubles. Um, poverty, uh, there's violence, there's, there's family disharmony, there's, there's elder abuse, there's courts, there's landlords, there's all sorts of stuff going on. You know, sometimes people say, hi, oh, you're keeping out of trouble? No, I'm a Christian, we wade into trouble. That's where we live. That's it. We see trouble, we're there, aren't we? But I need this church. I could not do that without you because I've got people praying for me and encouraging me. I've got resources. When a family has no food, I don't buy it myself. I go to the cupboard and get it. I've got cash in my pocket that somebody gave me to help people. I need this church. If I were to try and serve Jesus Christ in this town without this church, I wouldn't be able to have much effect at all. And the church needs me too. Because we have a sign out the front that says, Bridging the Gap. And I'm good at that. And I can encourage you and help you to do it too. Bridging the gap between people of different cultures and backgrounds. I'm going to make three statements here. I invite you to think about them. I need the church to be the best I can be. And so do you. Here's the next statement. I will try to never take offence when none was intended. How about you? And the third quote, I didn't make it up myself, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offence. Is that you? Let me recap. I started with the powerful prayer of Jesus, the ultimate prayer of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I looked at times that Christian heroes followed that example. Grand forgiveness that changed the world. We came right down to our everyday world and we looked at how very little acts of forgiveness, just overlooking an offence, could change our world and how a simple promise could change us. And we're going to finish by looking back at Jesus. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, he wasn't just talking about the people who were in that day's drama. He was also talking about us. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.